You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Medish of High Caliber History, your host, and I am joined around the table today with a, a great array of folks. We have Dan from Go Wild, we have Alan from Gunbroker.com, and we have Mike Helms, who is the Secretary Treasurer of the Smith & Wesson Historical Foundation, as well as a board member of the Smith & Wesson Collectors Association, of which I am also a member um, and this is a very special day because we're talking early Smith & Wesson history. So, uh, Mike, thanks for joining us today on the show. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Good deal. So, let's let's start off uh, very early and let's talk about company history and a little bit of the controversy over when the company actually began. Yeah. <laughs> because that's... they claim one thing and you and I as historians, we see it a little different. Yeah. So... In some of the marketing materials, you see 1852. Mm -hmm. I have seen 1854. And in some of the marketing materials, you'll see 1856. And they're, they're, they're actually all sort of correct. It, right. It depends on which Smith & Wesson we're talking about. So we actually don't know exactly when Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson first got together. We think it was around 1852. And we're pretty sure that that's when the first sort of partnership was mm -hmm. formed uh, when these guys were working together. So that's where the 1852 date comes from. In 1854, the first Smith & Wesson partnership was actually incorporated. Uh, that was to produce the Volcanic Magazine pistol. And that gun was actually kind of a flop. Um, it didn't work very well. The, uh, the rocket ball ammunition was not reliable. And stacking a bunch of those rocket balls where you have a, a, a pointy bullet um, up against the primer of the next bullet... Um, and they were literally bullets because there was, of course, there was no cartridge casing. It was, uh, the charge was in the base of the bullet. But stacking those on top of one another in a magazine just was not a good idea. Uh, so there was a lot of problems with the Volcanic. But the first partnership was in 1854. Of course, the original Smith & Wesson then became the Volcanic Repeating Arms Company in mm -hmm. 1856. And then that went on to become Winchester. When Oliver Winchester, because a shirt maker decided to invest in a gun company. We're not quite sure why, but... No, it makes perfect sense, makes right? Makes complete sense, yeah. but he got involved, um, and that did eventually become a very successful company, but Smith & Wesson were, were long out of it at that point. Um, they left the partnership, it was either in 1855 or 1856, and they had some very different ideas about guns to produce. Uh, essentially, they took the Flaubert cartridge, uh, which had been developed in France, which we now know as the Rimfire, and they took the uh, revolver, and of course Colt's patent was expiring in 1856. Mm -hmm. Colt was working really hard to try to renew that, but he, he was not able to renew that patent. And Smith & Wesson formed their next partnership in 1856, 
to produce what became the Model 1 revolver, and that's the Smith & Wesson that we know today. So all of those dates are sort of correct. It just depends on which Smith & Wesson are we talking about. Right. And are we talking about the company or just the partnership in general? Right. So someone says, so was Smith & Wesson founded in 1852? You're like, short answer, yes, with an if. Long yeah. answer, no, with a but. <laughs> See, this, and this is what I love about this podcast. I just learned something today because I was under the impression that it was because Horace Grant had a fake ID for Mardi Gras, and that's what threw everything <laughs> off. So. <laughs> no, that was D.B. Wesson. He's the one who yeah. had the fake gotcha. ID. Yeah. yeah. See, you, you learn something every day. You were close. I yeah. think Hor- I think Horace was kind of the upstanding guy. He was like he was the adult in the room. I think D.B. Wesson was more the I could kind see of that. character. So yeah. yeah, I could see that. But obviously, the partnership worked. I mean, things things went very well for them. And uh, you know, after obviously, you know, with the company coming out and starting at that point in time, they've got the Civil War you know, ramping up. Of course, they wouldn't have known that then, you know, right. when the company starts. But but by the time the war ends, uh, Mr. Smith and Mr. Wesson uh, in, in 1865 have personal incomes of $163,000 each. They are the only two people in the entire state of Massachusetts to have six-figure incomes. I mean, that, you know, 163000 is nothing to, you know, snub your nose at today. But my God, in, yeah. in 1865, that is a boatload of cash that was a boatload yeah. yeah and and they built that all on the back of the model one right yeah yeah the model one was uh until 1860 i think it was 1861 when the model two came out that was that was the gun that they produced was the model one um little seven shot revolver in uh, in 22 rimfire black powder and you brought with you something very special today. We've all, before we hit record, everyone was kind of <laughs> giddy about Taking it. Pictures. There was lots of pictures and uh, all sorts of stuff. So you have a very special Model 1 with us. Mike, tell us about this Model 1. Yeah, so this uh, this is Smith & Wesson Model 1. It's a first issue gun, which means it was one of the first 12,000 that were made before they had built their big factory on Stockbridge Street. Uh, it's a first variant gun, which means there was six engineering variations of the first issue. So this is a model one, first issue, first variant. One, one, one. And it's a, yeah, it's a one, one, one and it's serial number five, which actually makes it the earliest known Smith and Wesson revolver in existence right now. Serial number five. Serial number five. Yeah. Wow. And so what, uh, are there factory records for this gun or was that stuff lost? Do we have a, a ballpark as to when this gun actually dates to? You know, we, so we know that this was one of, so we think there was one gun made in 1856. We, we think that would be serial number one. They, they, they didn't really know the serial number at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I should say the company was incorporated in 18, November of 1856. We know that there was one gun at that point because one of the first entries in their ledger book was paying themselves back for the cost of producing that prototype. Okay. We know that in 1857, there was four more guns made. So presumably this was one of those guns because it's serial number five. Sure. And through process of elimination, we're pretty sure that this was one of two guns that went to another company called the American Machine Works, Mm -hmm. which was a machine tool company in Springfield. And if you're a Civil War collector and you have a sharp uh, Smith carbine, Mm -hmm. you know that some of the Smith carbines were made at the American Machine Works. So this was the same company. And we're pretty sure that this was one of two, what we would call tool room prototypes that were sent to the American Machine Works to have tooling made to make Smith & Wesson Model 1. So that literally does make it a production prototype. 
so for, cool. for, for a quarter million guns that came after that. So right. that's what, what we would in the modern day call the, a first article production. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the interesting thing specifically about that is that this gun has some different design features that you don't see on yeah. later Model 1s, um, you know, particularly with that cylinder uh, is interesting. Yeah, the cylinder, the cylinder is the big mystery on that gun. It's got this, uh, it, it's got this almost sort of barleycorn edge around the, around the base of the cylinder. And if you take it apart, um, that's actually a separate piece. And I, I've sort of speculated that this might have been an early experiment in some sort of automatic extractor. Um, it, it does sort of follow the pattern of the talk brake extractors that came mm -hmm. a little bit later. The experiment really didn't work the way they, the way I think, I, I think what happened with this was somebody started machining the barrel or, or the cylinder. Um, they, they drilled it and then they were cutting a flat into it. And the way they cut it, it, it was just kind of an engineering mistake. I, th I think somebody sort of went, uh-oh, this isn't going to work. Um, and, and then there was this question of, well, we've got to get this gun out the door because these guys were kind of living hand to mouth at this point. Yeah. Um, one of the neat things with, with the Smith & Wesson that we have now, the, the company now, is when it was founded, they were not working with a wealthy New York capitalist the way they were with the Volcanics. So... I think they had gotten to the point with capitalists where they, and you know what we would now call like a venture capitalist, where they didn't want somebody else at the table telling them what to do. They wanted complete co creative control over the manufacturing. So, you know, these guys were just working from their savings, and every gun they made, they had to sell and get that money back right. that they could keep doing their research and development with. So, I think what probably happened with this gun was they were doing some experimenting with it. They had the uh oh moment where we we think we've goofed. Um, they ended up just putting a little pin between those two pieces to kind of keep them indexed together and said, you know what, we're going to sell the gun. We're going to get it out of here. Oh, let's use that one as the tool room prototype because it's goofed up anyways. Mm -hmm. We can just tell them to ignore that part and, uh, and, and move on. So I, th I right. think for them, it was probably a bit of an uh-oh moment, but it's, uh, it, it's a neat glimpse into the past for us. We, I guess the work could have been done after it left the factory. We, we just don't know, but it's, mm -hmm. um, uh, that that back of the cylinder is serial number to the rest of the gun, so my hunch is that it was factory work. Right. So I, I find that interesting. That you know, this is again a production article that's basically being used to make the tooling for the full production run. When they sold it, did it sell? Was it uh, sold as a, a collector item, or did they just? Say we got another gun. Put on the put on someone's uh, counter for sale. I think. I, I, well, I don't know that it was actually sold because I think they had to give uh, they had to give the prototype to the American Machine Works gotcha. for. Now whether it just sat in their drawer, <laughs> you know, we don't know. There's, we know that this gun came into the Bill Locke collection. Bill Locke was a, a, a very famous Ohio gun collector that had uh, a couple of thousand guns. He was uh, probably the most prolific gun collector of his era. He died in, I think it was 71 or 72. There's a great book about his yeah. collection. So. Yeah. And this, and this gun is actually in the Bill Locke book. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know that it was in his collection and we know from some early magazine articles about the model one that it was in his collection as early as 1948. It could have been earlier than that. Um, so wh what happened to the gun between 1858 and the 1940s or 1930s when he bought it? I, I just don't know. It, it could have just sat in somebody's drawer and at that point, it was just an old gun that nobody cared about. And then Bill Locke maybe recognized the value of it and said, hey, this is important. Um, but we know for the past 80 years, it's only been essentially in three or four collections. It's amazing. Um, but exactly, exactly, you know, whether it went onto the market as a regular commercial gun or whether it just sat in their drawer for 60 years, who knows? Yeah. 
So after we have these, these are called tip-ups, mm -hmm. uh, but once we get past the tip-ups, we go into top breaks, mm -hmm. and, and you had mentioned briefly, you had touched on top breaks, and, and you've got a really nice, uh, really cool example of a, an early top break here, still in the original box, yeah. which is very neat. So tell us about this top break and, and this particular model and what it's called. Sure. So this, uh, this was called the 38 Single Action. This was the first Smith & Wesson gun that was chambered in any 38 caliber. And this was actually what started the, the 38 Smith & Wesson, which was, of course, was produced past World War II. Um, so this, this would have been, I guess, at this point, a medium size uh, or a medium frame gun. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Model 3s were, were the large frame and the Model 1s uh, were, were, were the compacts or the carry guns. Um, this was nicknamed the Baby Russian because it looked a lot like the Model 3 Russian. It had that extended um, extractor shroud housing. Um, it, it just really, really elegant lines that, that knuckle on the, on the back strap yep. just above the grip. So it, it, it got, it got the nickname baby Russian fairly quickly. And that's, that's stuck with collectors. Um, but a spur trigger, uh, as opposed to a more traditional trigger, yeah. like what we see on the model threes. Yeah. So the, um, this is a, this is an early baby Russian. Um, then there was a second issue that had the, that still had the spur trigger. Then there was the third that had the uh, uh, the trigger guard on it. Uh, those were sometimes known as the Mexican, and that was when we saw that transition from the uh, uh, from the spur trigger to a more conventional trigger and trigger guard. Gotcha. And so, if you the extraction for this, so with the Model Ones, you have to take the cylinder out, and yep. you've got to punch each individual spent cartridge out. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case with these. No, the neat the neat innovation with the um, with the top brake revolvers from Smith and Wesson was they had this automatic extractor. It worked a, it worked a little bit like a like a shotgun when you would uh, when you would break say a double barrel shotgun open and it would uh, pop the spent cartridges out. Right. Um, this did exactly the same thing, and this sort of uh, started the use of the word automatic, not in the context that we think of automatic now, but this okay. was an automatic extractor, and it would pop up. Um, it also actually had this little push button on the bottom of it, so you could push that button and the extractor would not come up mm. if for some reason, I don't know, if you wanted to do a press check on your... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on, on your, your top break. On your top break, yeah. Yeah, is it loaded? Um, but yeah, this was... Um, some people would argue, and I might even agree with them, that this was some of Smith & Wesson's just finest manufacturing. There's, a, there's an anecdote, and I don't know if it's true, but there's an anecdote that in the, in the 1970s or maybe the early 80s, Smith & Wesson wanted to uh, recreate, I think it was the Schofield. Mm -hmm. And they, they got some original Schofields, which came from this era, and they, uh, they couldn't figure out how to make them. <laughs> they were so well made. Oh. And they just couldn't figure out. I mean, unless unless somebody just sits and hand makes the gun, which right. of course isn't isn't economically viable. But these yeah. are these are just work of works of art from a machining perspective. They're they're incredible. That is devastating news in our uh, everything old is new again episode. I was asked what old design I want to see come back, and the Schofield is what I wanted to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, if you don't flip down that little latch on the top, could yeah. it still fire? With like if you if you aligned it but didn't flip down that latch on the top, yeah, like that, like that. Oh, I, it looked like you locked it into place. Yeah, this one's just tight. Um, yeah, so if you, that little lever was left up, would it still fire? I think it would. Yeah, this doesn't. This doesn't have any sort of uh, uh, hammer block on it or anything. No, I don't believe it does. It's just, yeah, and they're but they're built like absolute tanks. Yeah. I mean, that's you know even for that being a scaled down version of the Model Threes. I mean, that is still an absolute tank of a gun and. 
beyond being able to talk about uh, the the guns themselves, you know, we, we talk about just the the marketing genius, and we're getting into a point where we've got you know awesome illustrations on these boxes. And you see this here. I mean, it's it is just so cool to yeah. have that design on there, and 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 that this box survives. Yeah, is uh, is you know. You know the box is probably more rare than the gun, right? It, oh, it absolutely is. <laughs> it absolutely is. Um, and it came with the, it came with this little wrench in here. It, it, it's little. It floats around. <laughs> but uh, it even came with this little wrench, and you My could uh, one end of it was a screwdriver. It was sort of the multi tool of the eighteen seventies, right? Um, and it had the little wrench on the end, so you could take apart the uh, extractor. But even even the wrench, I mean, I, I sat and looked at it one night, and I was just like, "Wow, this is this is really well made." Right. Some, you know, this was an engineer. This was not, uh, mar- you know, marketing or uh, accounting. That. <laughs> so you're saying Alan didn't come up with this? Uh, the marketing PR guy didn't. Uh, he came up with the idea of the we photo the box. box. Yeah, yeah. We, we made the box, though. Yeah, we made the box, and the box is cool. <laughs> and this was also before the era of uh, of lawyers, so that was that was the instructions. That was on the uh, there you yeah, go. On the inside of the box lid, um, and it just goes right into directions for use. There's no, there's no state warnings or anything like that. So. Right. There's nothing on on the side of the barrel. No. You know, may fire if you know. Yeah. May fire if triggers pulled. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If loaded and trigger pulled, may fire. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing I mean, like it may that. not, but it may. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, right? And then, so then after the top breaks, we get into you know what we're what call hand ejectors yeah. which uh f- for everyone else is just a regular revolver you yeah. know with the swing out cylinder um and so that comes out with the model 1896 that we have here but it's it's a little different and so i'll show it to to dan over here dan do you see anything on this gun that looks different from a normal revolver is it this piece right here no it's not the recoil shield uh, the sights are kind of forward. Well, yeah, the sights are in are in a, a different spot. I'm not I'm not sure. Alan, do you? I don't see a cylinder release. Bingo, bango. Yep, oh. there is no cylinder release on here. Uh, normally, on a Smith, you know, you'd push it forward and the cylinder would come out. On a Colt, they do things backwards and you pull it back and the cylinder comes out. But on the 1896, it's up here and you pull forward on the end of the ejector rod and that's what brings the cylinder out so it's still the same concept of that swing out design you know and you push up and your extractor you know the star comes out and it kicks the spent casings but the cylinder release is is a very different design on these guns um, and and I, what I really like about them is that all of the patent info and the name of the company and everything is is on the cylinder and it's it's uh all, all the patent dates the location the name of the company you know that stuff that's normally either on the barrel uh or up on top of the rib but they put it on the cylinder and i just i just think that's cool as hell and i i really like that aspect yeah, of these guns they're a really cool gun the uh the 1896 and you know something funny about these was that there was a part of this that that sort of regressed a little bit with the with the top brakes you had the of course the automatic extractor so as soon as you broke the the top open, the extractor would pop up automatically. You know, again, like a like a double barrel shotgun or something like that. With mm-hmm. these, um, you would you would well initially on the first ones you would pull the extractor rod forward to swivel it out, but you had to extract with your hand, and that was why they became known as the hand ejectors because you had to eject by hand. Right. They weren't automatic, so in a in a sense they were going backwards a little bit on that. Um, although it, that ended up becoming an advantage. 
the other the other thing with these guns was the cylinder stop was along the top. Mm. Yeah, the cylinder stop was actually built into this this spring loaded lever on the top strap. Um, and this actually, this technology went right back to the Model 1. It had this sort of split spring that would catch this little hook on the top of the hammer Absolutely here. Yeah. So when the, when the hammer would come back, the cylinder stop would be raised, and then it would drop back down. But then when it would come forward, it would just go right into the spring. Um, this design changed very quickly. Uh, I think by 1898 or 1899, they had changed that, and they had moved the cylinder stop down just above the trigger. It was just a lot more li reliable, a lot less prone to breakage. Mm -hmm. um, but these are these are really cool and really collectible guns, and they're still actually really affordable to people right now. Um, so if you're looking for something interesting to collect, you know, look at the uh, look at the early Smith and Wesson hand ejectors. There, yeah, you know, they're still uh, affordable and approachable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that and that brings up a good point. You know, talking about the collectability. You know, all of these guns uh, are highly collectible. Um, and, and they're all still, you know, relatively available mm -hmm. on the market. Um, of course, they're, they're going to be at tons of different price points. You yep. know, you're, you're not going to find a 111 uh, at, at a super affordable price point. In fact, there's probably not even one on Gunbroker right now. <laughs> but, but I'm sure there's at least a Model 1. There's probably a few Model 1s on Gunbroker because they did go through six different iterations of those guns. Um, all told, how many Model 1s did they make? So they made about 260,000 Model 1s. And there was actually, if, if you look at across all three issues, there was actually about 28 different variations. Wow. I think that's okay. what I've counted. But uh, yeah, I mean, if, you know, obviously a 111 is, um, they're extremely rare. There was only 200 of them made. Um, and probably a maybe a dozen or two that have survived. Right. Um, but if you get into the, the 1860s or the 1870s, those guns get a lot more affordable. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can, at, at any given time on Gunbroker, I usually see a couple dozen of them. So Yeah, and, you know, Smith & Wesson is one of our most prolific brands on Gunbroker. I mean, at any given time, you've probably got a quarter million listings. Of, a quarter of a million. Wow. I mean, historically over time, of anything from, wow. you know, modern M&Ps back to some of these sure. collectible items. Um, one of the things that always makes Smith stand out to me when I look at the data, if you look at their average new price versus the average used price, the difference is about the price of a Starbucks Vente. Yeah. It, they're almost head on. So their value just holds up and maintains. It's, it's uh, an unusual brand to be that close. That was a very bougie reference of you, you know, to, to put the price in. I mean, in that was a weird unit of measurement. Yeah. yeah. Should I use American Bulldogs? We, well, yes, you should. <laughs> use, because big, use Big Macs. Yeah. How many Big Macs are we, we talking we about? We established in a previous episode that we measure things in freedom units, you yeah. know. So, you know, we measure things like in how many Liberty Bells or how many Screaming Eagles. We do not use Starbucks Ventis, Alan. Three three quarters of a brick of small rifle primers, um, <laughs> kind of the price difference between your there average you new and average used price. Uh, but yeah, Model Ones are still pretty affordable. Yep. Um, I think there were, to your point, about two dozen when I looked the other day, and they they kind of swung a bit. But for six hundred, you can yep. get into a pretty nice little model. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Own a great piece of history from an iconic American brand, and you know have a great story to go along with it. And I mean, and they're just cool looking. They are cool looking, and and Mike, you brought along another really cool looking Model One here uh, with you. Yeah. So this is uh, this is a second issue. So this uh, in 1860, Smith and Wesson built their uh, purpose built factory, and actually I want to go back to that for a second. 
the Smith and Wesson that we have now was founded in November of 1856. By 1860, they had built their own three-story factory. So even by modern terms, that is meteoric rise. And I'm going to, I'm going to dig on Colt here a little bit. It took Colt like 20 years to get to that point. (laughs) Smith and Wesson did it in three. So they were just better and smart. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Not really. We got to get Colt on the show at some point. So you got to be careful what you say. (laughs) So if Colt would like to rebut any comments made today, (laughs) you know how to contact We would love to have the Colt historian come on. And then when I come on and talk about Colt, we'll, you know. So so was that rise driven by consumer adoption or government contracts? That was all consumer. That was all consumer. This this was, I mean, really what this was was an urban carry pistol. You know, a lot of people, when they think about early Smith & Wesson, they think of the Wild West. This was, this was an urban carry pistol. This was for people in Boston and New York. I know there's a lot of politicians that are going to cringe when I say that, but cities were dangerous places. They had, they had municipal police forces, but they were nothing like they were now. These were just dangerous places to be, but this was in the heyday of the Industrial Revolution. A lot of people were moving to cities, so they were just exploding in size, and municipal p- policing just couldn't keep up with it. So they were dangerous places to be, and that was the appeal of a pistol like this, and it was so easy to load. Um, you know, women, women could, not that women couldn't use percussion, but um, back in the day, this was sort of seen as a kind of male enterprise. And um, this was a, this was a revolver that could be marketed to women. It was very easy to use. Um, and it was, it was driven entirely by, um, by, by consumer purchases. And, and how did it stack up as far as price point versus the Colts of the time? And It was pretty comparable. These, um, these wholesaled for about $9 a piece back in the day. And that was, that was about on par with Colt. The interesting thing with Colt was they didn't really have something to compete with the Model 1. Mm-hmm. I mean, their, their small, smallest revolver was the pocket revolver. I guess uh, maybe the roots were a little bit smaller than that. Um, but this this was just tiny in comparison. It was it was something that you could put in your pocket. The pocket the Colt pocket revolver you really couldn't put in a pocket. Yeah, the forty nine pocket with a six inch barrel yeah. is not uh, <laughs> unless you got really big pockets. Really big know? pockets. Yeah, maybe Carhartts or something like yeah. that. But um, but this this was an urban carry gun, and it, it just it just caught on wildly at the time. People loved it. They wanted it um, as many as they could make. They were they were just flying off store shelves. Um, so that was driven entirely by consumer sales. So anyways, this was all by way of saying that in three years, the company went from self-founded startup to building a three-story fa- you know, uh, brick factory in Springfield, a huge capital outlay, so that raw materials could go in one end and guns could come out the other. They were completely vertically integrated. And this was, this was the product of that. Um, the second issue came out, which was an engineered, this was a production engineered gun. Um, the, the engineering changes between this and the first issue uh, were done to make it a lot easier to produce, and this actually shipped from the factory as a fancy gun. That was how it was. That was how it was documented in the factory paperwork, and it went to the mayor of Springfield. It meant, went to a guy named Emerson White, and if you're from Springfield, you know that there's an Emerson White Park. That we're, we're talking about the same person. Um, we don't know if this was uh, maybe a gift. Uh, Horace Smith and White were both involved in local politics, so we don't know if maybe this was, uh, you know, hey buddy, here's a gift. Or if this had been sold to Emerson White and he gave it to somebody else as a gift. Unfortunately, we don't know that, but we know it shipped from the factory as a fancy gun, and it's a really nice example of a uh, of a second issue. Arming Massachusetts politicians, my yeah. how the times have changed. They have. <laughs> well, the politicians can still have the guns. It's everybody yeah, else yeah, is not allowed sure. to have them. You yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful gun. I mean, and and I love the the juxtaposition between the blue and the gold and the mother of pearl. Yeah. And then with all the engraving, I mean, that just that 
combination on all that is is an absolutely beautiful design and that's also a plug for if you're listening to this as the audio version of the podcast you really need to check out the video version yeah. uh, over on the go wild youtube channel so that you can see just how fancy the fancy gun really is it was know? very fancy it was very fancy yeah. very and then fancy when you indeed. carry it you have fancy pants Oh, Dan wins the episode. Thank you. I've contributed. That's my <laughs> contribution to this podcast. <laughs> that was great. Now these these are all great guns, and and as we've said, you know, you can you can find them on Gunbroker if you're looking to become a budding gun collector and you like the early stuff. This is still a way you can get into them fairly affordable. I, I don't think Mike's going to be putting serial number five on Gunbroker <laughs> anytime soon. So. No reserve. Yeah. <laughs> no reserve. Penny start. Penny right? yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you're also interested in getting started in collecting, I would say that your organization is probably a good good one to, to follow in and maybe Ab- even buy a membership. Absolutely. The, uh, the Collectors Association, we love when new people come in. We really make an effort at our at our annual symposium to welcome our new members. They even get a little thing on their badge that recognizes that they're you know they're a first time attendee at the symposium, and we go out of their our way to shake their hands and welcome them in and, and learn about their collecting interests and hey whether that's uh, you know whether that's the modern plastics or model ones or something in between, there's something there for everybody. Yep, it's good stuff. It's uh, it's a good organization. I've been a member for about ten years now, and and yeah, everyone's been really welcoming, and there's lots of info to learn. Yeah. So. We we try not to be the snobby organization. Yeah, so. there there are some of those out there. I'm members of those too. Yep. But <laughs> no names. No yeah, names. no, no, no names. We won't mention them. But yep. yeah, so guys, thank you so much uh, for sitting around the table and talking about some some early Smith and Wessons and some design changes and iterations. And thank you, Mike, for bringing along that absolutely amazing piece of history uh, serial number five is just you're gonna have to give it a good wipe down when you go home because i think it's going to get drooled on yep. while it's here but we we really appreciate you bringing it um and alan and dan appreciate you guys being here uh dan thanks for your fancy pants uh that was yep. the help. Yep. matches a shirt that'll, yeah, that'll be the youtube short there from you this go episode. absolutely <laughs> can, we get a, can we get a t-shirt done oh yeah, yeah we need a fancy pants with a model one ballers. going into it yeah. oh yeah. yes I love it. That's a great idea. Get on, get on that, Logan. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you guys for joining me around the table. Thank you, you, to the viewers and listeners for tuning in either on YouTube or on your favorite podcast player. Um, if you're not subscribed to the show on your favorite format, please do so. That's right. Press that button uh, and leave us some comments, some reviews. Uh, we would love to do that. Uh, love to have that from you as well. We do read uh, all the comments and stuff. Um, we appreciate it. If you happen to have serial number one through four, please comment. Please yes, know. absolutely. Yep. Mike would be more than happy to put a second mortgage on his house to get <laughs> yep. one through four, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you guys for tuning in, and we will see you right here on the next episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. <laughs>